Elle Jones is a poet, journalist, professor, and activist living in Halifax, Nova Scotia. She teaches in the Department of Political and Canadian Studies at Mount St. Vincent University. She's the author of Live from the African Resistance, a collection of poems about resisting white colonialism. Her work focuses on feminism, prison abolition, anti-racism, and decolonization. In rehearsals for Living, Robin Maynard describes Elle as a black liberation visionary and longtime prison abolitionist who was nourishing abolitionist freedom dreams for years before the public would listen. Since 2016, Elle has co-hosted a radio show called Black Power Hour on CKDU-FM. We talk about the important role that show played in producing the sort of bonds that allowed for more substantial and sustained prison organizing. Elle explains how the show translated into building relationships, which translated into legal advocacy, a significant prison strike, and the creation of a manifesto demanding justice for those behind bars. The show, she says, led to the creation of a kind of trust where people like Abdul Abdi got to know Elle, felt connected to Elle, and from positions where people are made to feel utterly disconnected from the rest of the world. Elle's been on the podcast before, but this is a special occasion because she's just put out a book that represents, as she's put it elsewhere, her life's work. The book, which you should order from Fernwood Publishing right now, is called Abolitionist Intimacies. It's started to appear on a number of lists of the best nonfiction books of 2022, and it's a difficult-to-describe intervention. As Elle describes it, the different parts of the book, the different approaches to writing in it, are kind of in conversation with each other. She says that different images and events preoccupy her throughout and tend to show up again and again in this iterative, poetic, meditative way. But the main idea of the book, she states very simply, is friendship. It's about love. Which is by no means simple, though, because the book is preoccupied too with the barriers to friendship and love. Those barriers are not housed in the hearts and minds of the incarcerated, she says but in the phone system that makes it near impossible to maintain communication with the outside world. The guards who police contact in the prison. The administrators who ban people from coming in. Elle is asking us, how can anything like intimacy be sustained under those conditions? One way that she's cultivated over time is by thinking a lot about the power and intimacy of voice. So much so much of abolitionist intimacies is about voice. Voices heard over the phone, over the radio. There is so much joy there, and pain too. There's a song from 1971 that listening to this interview made me think of, by Labby Sifre, the black queer singer, songwriter, and poet. The song is called Bless the Telephone. It's nice to hear your voice again. I've waited all day long. Even wrote a song for you It's strange the way you make me feel With just a word or two I'd like to do the same for you It's nice to hear you say hello And how are things with you? I love you But very soon it's time to go an office job to do while I'm here writing songs for you. Strange how a phone call can change your day, take you away, away from the feeling of being alone. Bless the telephone. Someone's voice and the feeling of connection can change your day. It can take you away. There are some indelible moments in Elle's book where she documents exactly this sort of witnessing. Witnessing the strength of connections across borders and through walls, against the tyranny of a carceral society. And she points out that changing the world we have is within our grasp, even if it's difficult to imagine. Like she admits that, quote, it's difficult to live a different kind of life. Of course it is. But the point is that it can be done just not through separated acts of individual behavior change. It has to happen collectively. Sacrifices, in her words, are also blessings. I wanted to ask you, first of all, about the you know, form and structure of your new book, Abolitionist Intimacies. I wanted to kind of gesture to this, this interview I saw recently 
with Robin D.G. Kelly, where he actually like talks about the importance of black surrealist poetry in his life and his, in his thinking and his work. Um, and so his sense is that it's just a different kind of knowledge practice. Uh, he calls it a splattering um, that gives you, I mean, he says an access to almost a collective unconscious. What he's saying is that it can also reveal gaps in kind of venerated kinds of knowledge like Marxism. And so like the way that you write theory is poetic and the way your th- your poetry works is it's kind of a form of theory. Basically, I just wondered if you could help us kind of think about what you're doing here in terms of entering into conversations with both, you know, poets and novelists like Dion Brand and theorists like Zadia Hartman. Um, like, why did you want to move through these different modes and what does this way of thinking and communicating do within, for example, Black feminist thought from your perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, for those who haven't had a chance to see the book, there's many different kinds of writing. There's poetry, different kinds of poetry. So uh, probably some of the first time people have seen some of my page poetry too, which I never performed. So there's actually poet poems that are not spoken word in the book as well. Um, a sprinkling of them at least. And then there's obviously like more academic critical writing and then personal writing and then things that are like fragments or diaries or journals. So it, journalism is in there. So there's really a range of different writing styles. Um, I think part of that is because it's a book that's very much founded on voice. And one of the things I, I've been saying is when I went to Banff, which is where the first draft of this book was written, um, Leanne Better Samasaki Simpson selected me for a Writer's Trust Award, and it came with two weeks at Banff. And that was where I was able to write the first draft of this. And um, we have readings there. And as I listen to other people read their prose, I realize I never describe anything or anyone visually. Um, I will never tell you what Abdul looks like or what Fatuma looks like or Desmond looks like. And part of that is because so much of the book is about voice and particularly the voice that I hear over the phone. So that I never actually, in so many ways, even people like Desmond or Adil or Robin that I know personally, because I don't live in the same city as them, we rarely see each other. Um, So, so much of my life and relationship and intimacy is actually conducted over the phone and through voice and conversation. And I think that, so that idea is, first of all, in the book, in literally how the book is based. Like you see all these voices from people in prison, notes on prison, which is very close to the opening. Um, There's a very short opening and then Notes on Prison is really the first main chapter. Um, And that's just a recounting of dozens of conversations that I've had with people in prison. Um, Mm -hmm. So within the book, then, I think there's the different parts of writing are also in conversation with each other. Um, One thing I realized that I didn't realize until I really saw the book together is um, certain ideas or images of something that have obviously preoccupied me show up again and again. So um, the young teenage man who comes inside and hasn't touched grass that shows up in a poem. And then I talk about it in an old on prison. I think I talk about it again somewhere else. So often I'm kind of having that conversation also within myself between the different forms. And I think the forms sort of go back and reassess. And I think that's perhaps Adrian Harewood um, said that there was almost a kind of obsessive witnessing in the book. And I think that's true. And I think that's perhaps because of this encounter with trauma, right? That mm-hmm. um, the powerlessness that you have to do anything about the prison system, um, you know, like that you, all you really have is your voice. So to almost obsessively return into these places and using all the language that you have, try to do justice to these stories, right? Um, So I think that's part of it that I'm trying over and over and over again in sort of every phase of my life and every form of myself to approach this issue. But then, yeah, I mean, in a really practical way, by the time this book came out, so um, there's writing in this book that's like a decade old, particularly through the poems, um, which is interesting. No one's kind of pointed it out yet. But, you know, when I say stats and stuff, sometimes in the poem, like I say in federal prisons, indigenous women, and I put makeup far more than one third because of the rhyme, but it's like half now. Right. So Mm. that's kind of Mm -hmm. over the time between I wrote that poem, which was not that long ago, by the way, like that's from white juries, which is from maybe 2018. And in that four years, that stat has expanded, which is absolutely disgusting and alarming. Right. Mm. Um, But you know, there's work that's quite old in this book, like relatively, like certainly five, six, seven, eight years. So, um, by the time it came out, 
there's so many books on abolition. So when I was starting writing this, like people didn't really, you know, it wasn't mainstream. There was clearly, of course, an abolition movement, but it was very close, small. Everybody knew everybody in it. And then, of course, with 2020, abolition really expanded into the mainstream. And as a result, there's been this glut of like, what is abolition books, which are really important. Mm-hmm. But of course, by 2022, you don't need me to tell you like, what is abolition? Another guide to abolition, all those those are valuable. My book is doing something else. So I think part of it too is that at this point, how do we also sort of reapproach and come into abolition in different ways that are different from just explaining, you know, what does defund the police mean or what does abolition mean? Um, and so, yeah, the the structure is really in that sense, experimental. So having those conversations between different areas and it's a book about intimacy, right? And that, as I say, actually in the book, it's like the form and the structure and the subject, you know? So intimacy is not just what the book is contending with it, is how the book is written. As you said, like breaking down, I did not want an academic book. I did not want a book that would just be full of theory and citation. Um, mm-hmm. That's not me. And I that didn't feel true to what I do. So the book is really playing around with a lot of that as well. And I think speaking back to these different spaces. And of course, part of the point of experimental or avant-garde or feminist structures is to recognize these kind of institutional structures, whether that be obviously the prison, the academy, or publishing, right? So how do we speak around them and speak differently? Yeah, and um, you're doing that kind of actively. I say that there isn't much reflection on form and style, but you are talking about how it really wasn't conceived of as a book. Like the point was not to write a book. Um, and, And the point then is to, like there's a moment in the book where you say, we are the living archive. Um, and, and there's like, you know, a force to that, that assertion of the we in that moment that is about a kind of collective voice. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, like this, this idea of witnessing in particular, like that you're literally asking the question, what does it mean to witness for you to act in, in some senses as witness? Like this is, this is to me the thing, like you're talking about early on in the book, like collecting and collectivity, you're making that link. Um, and you could say that's like an, uh, you know, theoretical move, but it's also this like very practical move of trying to, um, you know, make convincing and, and material this idea of like collective struggle. Um, so when you talk about Randy or Abdul in the book, you're saying things like Randy is, quote, both the literature and the action that is black, that is black focused abolition in Canada. There's almost this aggressive attempt to undo a forgetting that is at the heart of white supremacy. Um, And I want to ask you about that in terms of your approach again, like whether part of the goal is sort of to realize, materialize a just society by kind of countering these forms of collecting that the state does, which are about documenting and collecting and punishing the most vulnerable by adopting an ethics of collecting that operates in a completely different mode an archive that, as you say, cannot be limited to paper. Um, and basically, like, how did you figure out how to act as a collector of experiences while also working consciously to avoid privileging your own point of view over theirs, which is something that academics, I think, do? Yeah, I mean, I suppose in a really practical way, like, uh, there's sort of two books that this melds. So one was an, initially a book called, it was going to be called Canada is So Polite, that was poems and essays. Mm-hmm. Um, and so most of the poems stayed from that and some of the essays. But And a lot of those essays that got cut were, you know, there was like a lot of stuff about encountering colonial institutions, and um, but they just didn't fit into the book. So there was that book. And then the theoretical stuff was actually for my dissertation. Mm-hmm. Um and then the whole dissertation was about 400 pages with this material, like doing your sort of theoretical stuff on prisons and then this creative stuff. Um, but obviously that wouldn't have worked as a book that could be published. It would have been a massive book and it would have been not really clear how things followed. So that all gets sort of chopped up and put into this book and quite literally chopped up. So all those sort of theoretical sections are chops from the dissertation. So like three, four pages at a time mm-hmm. and just really split into that. So there is a kind of, practical thing um but that's very much related i think to the process of writing within institutions so one of the sort of personal through lines that's in the book um that comes up and when you quoted we are the living archive it's in the context of me really trying to find i guess my compass within 
at times where I'm being rejected from universities. I talk about the book being rejected. You know, I sent it to an agent and they essentially told me that no one would want to read this um, in February of 2020. So, you know, mm. obviously we can think about that timing. Um, you know, so there's a, some of the, a lot of the kind of despair or, or, or struggle that I'm having in the book is to write these things knowing that it's what needs to be written, but also with everything in my life pushing against me writing it. Um, so as people are telling me, why don't you stop doing that and just settle down and write your dissertation? You know, why don't you stop answering the phone and just write your dissertation? If you stop doing poetry for a year, you could be finished your dissertation. Um, so in that sense, it's a defiance to those really institutional narratives that were put upon me and were shaming me around this work I was doing in an mm -hmm. academy that claims to value community work and will have community capacity grants from shirk for massive amounts of money as long as you don't actually invest yourself in the research right yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when you go through the ethics process and they actually consider knowing people in prison having close relationships to be a risk rather than a benefit um so they're like red flagging you because you're like i actually know people so and i do say this in the book that that kind of model of hidden run research is what the academy really models right um that you don't have to know anyone in prison. If you decide that prison is a, a good thing to research, you just set up a research project, you get your grants, you go in, you interview your people, and then you're out. And then you write a book. And as opposed to that, that is a form of what I call a carceral intimacy within the academy, right? Um, that we use and extract people's stories and our proximity to them through our own proximity to power and grants. And then we ourselves get those stories and that's it, you know, and then we're not even supposed to maintain a relationship or contact with the people from whom we mind those stories. It's a very extractive and colonial relationship. And as opposed to that, and I'm not saying I get it perfect because I am the one with my name on the book, right? <laughs> um, so I'm not going to deny that I am also taking stories and using them. Um, but that question, so that's one of the sort of perhaps unanswerable questions in the book is how do we do this ethically, right? Sure. How do we listen to people ethically? How do we talk about these things ethically? How do we witness things to which we are not part? Mm -hmm. How do we tell someone's story? And the answer is, you know, you can get permission from them. And I do, like they have seen the book. Um, you know, you can try and be sensitive. And then also, yeah, we're going to wade into waters where somebody else might say, I don't like that you told these stories at all. Like you should wait for the other people to tell them. And that is valid, right? Um, but we have to at least, I think, be try and have that process with ourselves, right? Yeah. Um, what does it mean to try and write in community with people? What does it mean to be the storyteller? That is actually, of course, in African cultures, that is a trusted position, but it comes with a community obligation, right? That you don't just tell stories. The expectation is you're within community and you're sharing and you're giving, and then you're honored with the story, right? That's also true of indigenous cultures as well, right? That story has ceremony. I'm not going to speak for indigenous people, but storytelling is understood to have a time and a place and a ceremony and there's stories you don't tell and you say where you got the story from. So these are about ethical practices of storytelling that exist in our communities. Um, so yeah, as a, as a feminist, as a black feminist praxis, um, you know, it, it's like, I don't know, honestly, I don't know if it made it into the book. I haven't always read my whole book and there was edits. Does does the book actually talk about Zora Neale Hurston or did that come out? It does. Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, so the good. version that I have, yeah. Okay, perfect. Um, um, that's So that's actually the sort of image I talk about where, you know, white male anthropologists had told the story of, you know, the last living survivor of the slave trade and told it in this very so-called objective and academic way. And then when Zora Neale Hurston comes to retell the story, she narrates herself coming into the book. She talks about bringing gifts. She also talks about walking through the gate. And that is a really important act because she's acknowledging her presence in the story. Mm -hmm. And I am taking these words and I am here and I can't pretend that I'm not here. So I have to acknowledge that I'm here and what that comes with and what my obligations are. So um, very much I was trying to navigate that. Like I said, um, you know, it's not an easy thing. And I don't know if there's any way to get it right. Um, it's interesting, too, because, for example, Jerry, who's named in the book, I was very worried about that. Mm -hmm. And I kept saying to Jerry, like, are you sure um, you're going to be in this book? CSC isn't going to like this book. You know, um, they may complain about you. And he was very adamant that he wanted his name. So I couldn't strip that from him. Whereas most people are named by initials, right? Yeah. Um, so, because of course, I can't go to all 500 people I've talked to in my life and say, can I speak about you specifically, right? Um, so most people are just given an initial. 
that I hope is also, but the story that is true to them. But there's some people, Sarah, Randy, Jerry, other people who were named Abdul, obviously. And um, yeah, I think it's a very, very difficult thing to sort of try and, again, what is such an intimate process, like people telling you who they are. It's, it's so, one, there's something Abdul said, um, you know, it was very difficult when we were doing that campaign and his name was everywhere and he has to live with that. It's not just a case. It's not just, you know, a story to tell. It's somebody's life and they live with it forever. And so to try and be mindful of that and to both tell their story in a way that honors them, in a way that hopefully tells us something about these systems, but that doesn't degrade them or humiliate them or lock them into something. Um, I don't think it's ever a solvable question, but all I think that we can do is, is try and do it with care. And that's, again, what I hope I did in the book. And I think the whole thing is that like you're you're asking like hard questions. It's in a sense like a hard ask of sociology, for example, let's say, to rethink the very foundations of sort of how you do research, to like interrogate your own investments in making claims about things that you presumably care about. And like the difference here for me is that there are these moments where you're relating, like waking up in the middle of the night with anxiety just vibrating through your body. You're, there's moments where you say that, you know, you can have love and solidarity and rage, but you can't expect to have the comfort of the world too. Like that to me is what makes it kind of a hard ask when you're looking at the amount of privilege that is concentrated in the university. I, I like that you admit that you don't know if you got it right, but I think the whole point is to try to be as conscious as possible about the sort of um, risks ethical and otherwise of trying to produce some some account you know like the the risks it seems to me with a book like this is on the one hand a kind of voyeurism you could say like the you know the kinds of experiences that you're documenting could be documented in a way that is you know if you put if in the wrong hands almost salacious and then the other risk is reprisal i mean like there's moments where you're describing subversive acts insurgent acts and in a sense documenting these moments of refusal in the prison that if they got into hands of guards would be potentially a way to, you know, punish prisoners, right? Like, so those are in a sense risks that you're taking, but I think they're risks worth taking, uh, at least from my perspective, in terms of giving people a picture of this world that exists on the other side of that wall, you know? Um, but um, yeah, yeah, uh, um, yeah, go ahead. Rachel Fader talks a lot about this, um, how particularly women in prison, this is what her research is on, and she's formerly incarcerated. Um, you know, these narratives of women in prison that become very abject narratives. Mm -hmm. And she talks about in her research how destructive that is and, you know, why don't we tell the other narratives of resilience and resistance mm -hmm. and other things, right? And that in our perhaps well-intentioned attempts to document whether that's racism or experiences in the prison system, and I feel this is a Black person too, that it's like, it's like, oh, God, it must be so terrible to be black. You know, like we're the bottom of every statistic, the most suspended, the you know, the most policed. And that becomes this litany. And then uh, it's like white people are like, thank God I'm not black. You know, um, like it's it's can become this kind of like spectacle, as Sadia Hartman talks about with black death as well. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So how do we both talk about the deep violence that the state, of course, wants to induce amnesia about pretend isn't there? Um, allied so that we need to confront but how do we do that in a way that yeah doesn't just render people as this kind of material right um right. so i yes i mean there's a lot of sort of awful things in the book but there's also a lot of me just laughing with people and funny stories and um packing boxes with families and people comforting me and um you know people in prison giving me love and you know what we care about and all of those things too so um, mm -hmm. That's something I realized very early, actually, when I was first going into prison, when they used to let me in, <laughs> Those, <laughs> that ship has sailed. Um, <laughs> I used to think very early on, I thought, oh, you know, like if somebody asked you how, how is your week, that it would be like obscene, you know, to be like, oh, I had a really bad week. Like my boss mm -hmm. got mad at me because my grades were too high or I didn't, you know, whatever. Like I was like, I'm not in prison, you know, like anything I went through in the week can't be like anything close to what they went through in the week. And I very rapidly realized how unhuman that was because mm -hmm. that's placing yourself in the savior position. Like I come in, you are vulnerable with me, but I refuse to be vulnerable with you. 
So Mm -hmm. there's no possibility for us to be friends. Now we're just transactions with each other. You know, I'm not a social worker, right? I'm not here to do your case. We're here to write together in this case. And in order to do that, we have to have a relationship. In order to do that, my week matters. And your ability to say to me, oh, that sucks that you had a fight with your friend, or I hope work gets better, or don't worry about it, you're awesome, you know? The things that friends say to each other cannot be denied in that situation. So once I really realized that, um, yeah, it, it just, I think, opened that space to understand that it's, it's friendship, it's love, it's a relationship like anything else. And I also wanted that to be portrayed in the pages. That yeah. the barrier to that is not the people inside. The barrier to that is the phone system that monitors us. The barrier to that is the guards that block our visits, the administrators that ban us, the narratives about us. Those are what block our intimacy, the pressures and stress of prison, all of those things. But what does not block our intimacy is our ability to see each other, to listen to each other, to care about each other. Those things don't go away. And that is what the book is about. Like It really is a book about love. And that sounds trite, perhaps, but underneath that's what the book is about. And I mean, like that is, yeah, something that is like militated against by the structure of the prison. And so much of um, what you're documenting is the sort of the evidence of the, the scale of injustice. Like you're you're trying to cut through the contradictions of the injustice system, its hostility to analyses that don't align with its discourse of, you know, personal responsibility of evil. Um, and, and really trying to expose the failure of that system, um, uh, an inhuman system of, of punishment that divorces us from any connection to the world. And, and like, to me, the stories are, are crucial, the, the giving of a cat, the, you know, the, but in particular, like to me, like all of these reflections around music, um, like, so obviously your radio show was a way to transcend um, those material barriers that are put in place. And I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. I mean, like there are these moments where you're saying like music offers an entry point from which political discussion can take place. Talking about music, it's it's a different kind of archive. It's far more alive in some ways, just like actually responding to the request for songs of people who are incarcerated is a way of showing love. Well, radio was actually how um, I first connected with everybody in Burnside because they were listening to CKDU. And so when we were doing the show, like, again, not to belabor the intimacy point, but as opposed to, you know, what you're listening to on CBC, actually, they do call CBC and stuff. But um, I think people feel closer to community radio, like, that, you know, that that's an accessible thing that they can be part of. And that was how it started. People calling um, at the time they hadn't blocked the phone so people could call directly and have a conversation on air or be like, I want to listen to this song. Um, Can you... And we were the show that was responding to that. It was music requests to start with, where people realized, you know, I want to hear this song and they could ask. And one of the things I talk about is as people were pushing back on us in the early days on the show, um, because they were angry at the music we were playing because, you know, CKDU and it's like, you know, people are playing a lot of indie and folk and then we would be playing like hip hop. People would get Mm -hmm. angry at the language, right? Yeah, you talk a lot about this, yeah. Oh, you know, like you have obscene language, like it's the N word, it's this. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were very, very firm on this idea of when you can't request anything in your week, the ability to have one person you can call and say, I want to hear a song and hear it is really important. And we weren't going to deny people that. So it doesn't matter if I like that music or not. That's not the point. What matters is that people needed to hear that music. And then once we sort of created that space where people were allowed to participate and people had, you know, had the sense that they were welcome they also shared other things. So they shared their poetry. They would call and say, you know, there's a woman here. She doesn't have a mattress. Can you help? Um, and then through those conversations, that was really what really started things like legal advocacy. Because as people would sort of tell me these things, I couldn't just sit there and document it and be like, oh, that's really interesting. You know, thanks for sharing. I had mm-hmm. to do something. So then I would be like, well, let me see if I can talk to your lawyer. Okay, well, let me call this. Let me talk to your mom. Let me. And so we just started doing that. Right. And that was what really built into a lot of the advocacy. It's not in the book, but for example, Abdul Abdi, when I first talked to Abdul on the phone from prison, he said, well, I, he had been hearing my voice on the radio all those years. Mm-hmm. So there was a kind of trust where he already knew me. Yeah. So it was easier to enter into a space where his life was quite literally in our hands. Right. Um, but it's also a political platform. The prison strike came from there. We were sharing information about Black August and the prison strike in the U.S. Um, and 
they heard that and of course connected it to their own conditions and from that developed their own manifesto and that strike is really important. There's been a lot of strikes since, especially with COVID, but there hadn't been a lot of sort of publicized strikes in Canadian jails or prisons at that time in 2018. And that was a really important strike that inspired a lot of other people. Um, you know, just people being able to sort of feel that they had a voice led them to be able to do other things like share habeas, all kinds of stuff. So um, mm -hmm. it really was and is a political platform for people as well. It's an organizing tool. It sort of broke through some of these uh, these barriers that exist to shut down connection. And it, it, you know, in many ways demonstrated just like the power of trying to restore that connection. Um, you say at one point in the book that rap in particular, from Robin Kelly's point of view, is like this space where people can exercise some small agency denied to them elsewhere. That to me is is really powerful. And it's just like so interesting too, how you talk about um, the way that despite the fact that it was sort of under the radar of the prison in some ways, it was because it was over the air, um, you know, it like triggered, you know, the white population basically of, of Halifax. And there's this like way in which they sought to police you, like shut down the radio show, uh, make these complaints. It's really, you know, it's, it's a demonstration of like how the logic of the prison sort of permeates society in a way to like police language. But um, I wanted to uh, come back to something that you were saying before about sort of like academia and like ambition in some ways, like, you know, there's a degree of like vulnerability at the end of the book where you talk about like desire uh, of the abolitionists and like, you know, so th this is, this is where you're sort of talking about a kind of conflict in you between the abolitionist who works tirelessly and selflessly to burn it all down as a path to liberation. Um, but also, you know, a person who is implicated in a kind of capitalistic academic, and maybe also, I don't know, artistic complex as art is commodified too. And who seeks, as you admit in the book, forms of recognition for the work you do. And to me, like that is, um, courageous in a way, like, or at least responsible, like that you're wrestling with this one side of you that is symptomatic of all the competitive individualism in the world. And, you know, I hesitate to ask the question, but I think it's, it's, it's an, you know, kind of an important one in the book. Like, is it about wrestling with that so that you can do the work in a more radically committed way? I actually think it's very tied to my colonial history. Um, I'm from mm. a high pressure immigrant home. You know, my mother mm -hmm. had to claw her way out of poverty. Um, my family was actually my aunt, Marion. So my grandfather, who I talk about in the very opening of the book as a Calypsonian, you know, absolutely brilliant, brilliant man, obviously couldn't get a PhD as a black man coming from Trinidad, um, was a Calypsonian fireworks maker and very, very political figure and a sort of figure around town as well in Port of Spain in Trinidad. Um, but, you know, obviously that didn't pay the bills. They lived in poverty. They had to pawn things, all of that. Um, and it was my aunt who because obviously of my grandfather's brilliance and his kind of cosmopolitan who had books and stuff, when she went to take the exams at age 11, um, she became third on like the entire island and no girl and no black girl had ever come that high and they had to figure out what to do with her. And she was the first black girl to integrate the convent school. Hmm. And then that was a very, I mean, she had a very traumatic life in a lot of ways, but she ended up working for UNESCO. She got her PhD at LSE. So and it, she's quite a bit older than my mother. She's 16 years older than my mother. That's her oldest sister. So it was her money coming back to pay for people's school uniforms. And, you know, as she went along in her life. Um, but so that kind of sense of colonial accomplishment where that one or two percent were able to get these scholarships off the island and go into England. Right. And then you could get these high power jobs, that colonial elite that you had to fight to be part of through exam taking, through incredibly hard work. That is ingrained in my family. That's how my family got on. My mother left home at 15 and she went to live with my aunt and was studying for her A-levels alone because they didn't have science for girls, right? And she really wanted to be a doctor. She ended up a chemist. Um, and, you know, I grew up hearing these stories about like how she, and I guess that really sort of in a way encapsulates it because she had to leave home. You know, she was living and studying with the ambition of going to university and of course, living this middle-class life, but all sustained by this labor of women. Um, all of the women in my family would be sending money, right? Uh, I have a great aunt, great, great aunt in New York or whatever that would was working as a domestic, you know, that would be sending my mom $20 and did that to the end of her life, like send her $20 every Christmas hmm. that she probably couldn't afford. 
one of my other aunts was working at the time. I can't remember what she was doing, you know, and was sending her salary to my mother so that my mother, and she would say, go to a play, go get yourself a coat, get yourself something nice. And my mom wasn't spending it. She was saving it. And then when her sister said, you know, oh, I wish I could go back and be a teacher. My mom said, I saved all your money. Here it is. Go to school. So this kind of sharing within this system, like even as my family became this like uplifted out of colony, out of poverty, whatever family through these very colonial means, the academic system, at the same time, the means of getting there was entirely communal and particularly entirely by women sharing the little resources that they had and sustaining each other. But of course, being born into that from birth, it was, I have to be the best in the class, uh, best in orchestra, best in running, you know, whatever it is, like you were expected to achieve because there was obviously an understanding that as a black woman in this world, you're not going to be given anything and you have to be excellent. So I always grew up like that. And it's very, very ingrained in me. And it's a thing I have to fight against. Hmm. When I didn't have a PhD, it was very shameful for my mother to feel like, oh, I have to go to church and other people's kids have this. And then people are like, why isn't your daughter finished? And she was very ashamed of that. You know, why don't you have a job? You know, like, so these are things that really matter. And not because they wanted the check marks, because it mattered for survival. Yeah, It was literally that razor line between eating and not. Um, but being descended from that, that is the battle inside myself. I've always been like, I like doing poetry, but it doesn't take me to a PhD, you know? I like yeah. doing this. I think it's important to do this work, but it is not the work that will get me into the academy to get me like the stability and the job. And it's not just about recognition. It's in very real ways, again, about sustaining yourself, as you know, on precarious labor. Mm -hmm. um, in order to sustain yourself, you're talking four or five courses. I had to write weekly for the examiner and do poetry and talks and this and that. And you really and then when you're doing advocacy and this stuff on top of that, you know, you're talking 18, 20 hour days, which you can't sustain for your whole life. Um, yeah. You can't sleep three hours a night and get up and work and work and work. So it's also how black women die when we have to work like that, when the institutions don't recognize us and give us space to live and to think and to breathe um, so that we can do this work in an organized way. This is partly why this book takes so long to come out. The reason why it's coming out in 2022 is because until then, I didn't have the time to sit down and write a book. If Leanne had not sent me to Banff, which is a beautiful space, but also as she herself has talked about, a kind of problematic space. It's funded by oil money, right? So yeah. we go to Banff and we sit in these beautiful buildings funded by oil to write our books about the environment and the destruction of the sure. oil industry, right? Like this is all around us. Um, but without that space, I would not have had a draft of this book. No, yeah. I know what is the place to put my energy, but all these other forces try to make that unsustainable. The world does not love you for that. And the university does not love you for that because they don't love the things that you're advocating on. And if they loved Fatuma, they would love me and they would love my work, but they don't love Fatuma, so they can't love me, right? Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a very deep thing. And that's really about, yeah, these generations of colonial trauma that we're still working through and that really infuse how we live in the world. And that's, yeah, very much, I'm not going to deny that is in me. I'm very like, you know, my mom loves awards, you know, so I'm like, you know, can I have an award now? You know, um, they make a difference, right? I mean, Jeremy Dutcher is known to, you know, Canada uh, has done a tiny desk concert in part because he won, you know, the Polaris Music Prize. Like that was a life changing event. Those forms of recognition, in spite of the ways that Glenn Coulthard, for example, talks about the kind of lie of recognition within a still white supremacist culture, um, they can they can certainly make a difference and propel an artist, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I think that's why, as you say in the book, um, you know, you talk about how your mother told stories about basically overcoming racism, not about being crushed by it. You know, like you say, they were meant as motivation um, and became a kind of foundation for your racial consciousness. But now, of course, you know, you're, you're, your career is about trying to dwell in the agony of that, like internal antagonism between political ideas uh, and, and awakenings and this kind of need for legibility, recognition, survival in conditions of precarity. Yeah. And I mean, we can't lie, right? I think any artist is yeah. a liar if you pretend you don't care. Like we'll say, you know, in Slam, we'd always be like, oh, no, it's not about the points. And you'd be livid if somebody got more points. And you're like, that is just very <laughs> real. Um, so I think as artists, 
artists have huge egos and we have to be honest about that, right? Like we get on stages and people clap for us and we want people to clap for us. And it feels good when people clap for you. Nothing feels better than when you're dressed up in your nice clothes, doing a thing you're really good at that people respond to. And then you get clapped and everyone tells you how great you are. Like, how could you not love that? Right. Um, no, and of course, everybody wants their book to be a bestseller or to be read everywhere or to be praised. There is no, nobody who wrote a book who isn't checking those reviews. Nobody. Mm. Like, so, you know, these are just, and then you may say you won't do it. And then there you are searching Twitter for like references to your name, right? Like, so I think we just have to accept that. And that's kind of what is the desire to the abolitionists about that we have very human desires and, and we shouldn't condemn ourselves to those things. That's part of being human in the world. How do we understand our own desires and not guilt ourselves to them, but also understand that some of those desires are tied to the exact world that we're trying to change, right? In the ideal world that we want, um, everybody would have access to education and we wouldn't need all these PhDs and credentials and stuff in order to share knowledge with each other. But we're not in that world. So mm -hmm. we become dependent on these things. So yeah, it's really, I mean, there is a real through line and it's kind of, sad sometimes reading through the book because there is and I, I obviously I, I'm in a bit of a different space now I do have a tenure job you know um so it's a bit sad in some ways going back into some of those places where I'm talking about like feeling rejected or the real self-doubt and those things don't go away but yeah I mean it's kind of interesting as a chronicle in some ways I suppose it could be read as a chronicle of precarious academic work you know? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. like the conditions of labor within precarious academia as you try to do work I mean that's another kind of underlying notion in this book yeah and you know certainly relatable for me like I just you know I wanted to ask you about being in Banff um you know you, you do talk about it a fair bit in the book in part because it is like part of the narrative of writing the book um you know I just went to Banff uh as part of a you know, um, a collective of people that are writing about the environment, um, and again, like in the, in the BP room, in the Petro Canada room, like we're recording podcasts and, and trying to crack the, the problem of like energy transition. You know, this is the thing about being in a place like Banff, as you say in the book, one of the most beautiful places in the world. And yet below the surface of that beauty and the, you know, the beauty of the Banff center campus, maybe more specifically, there are, as you say, ghosts, you know, there are ghosts there. And so in this space of like arts oriented luxury and privilege, there's like a buried truth. And I wondered if you wanted to talk about like, you know, what you're getting at there, what the reality of it is, the sort of buried histories and why it's important to kind of remember to remember in these contexts. Yeah. So Banff and Jasper are national parks uh, forged by prison labor. That's literally how they're built. Um, so particularly during World War I, conscientious objectors and also Ukrainians, Mennonites, um, like a lot of Eastern Europeans were incarcerated, essentially in concentration camps in the park and forced to build the parks. Um, and this is part of this underlying structure of prison that, as I say, is everywhere. The prison is all around us mm -hmm. and then forgotten about. So we don't think of that when we're in Banff, um, but it's there as in, in many beautiful places as you drive through rural regions, there's prisons there as well, right? Um, there's prisons across the bridge. So I think part of this, and as I say, um, like, so what, in the sense of it's not like it stopped me from eating the food or going for the, you know, like, mm -hmm. it's not like it changed anything. I still sat there and wrote my book. But I mean, part of this is, of course, about the very privilege of writing, that that tension of exactly like you can't write if you don't have space and space is a privilege. Right. So in order to everybody, all writers, in order to get our work done, eventually have to go into silent places, remove ourselves from the world, turn off our phones, get off the street. We all have to do that at some point. And that in itself is a removal and a separation that is a privilege. Even if you are writing while you do another job, there's still a point where you draw a boundary around other people, you know? So I think the eternal space of writing itself is is like one that you have to assert boundaries around too in order to do so. I don't know. I mean, that's that kind of, I suppose, part of the idea is that writing in itself, the process of writing is a removal, but my work is all about answering the phone and talking to people and hearing people. And how, do, in that sense too, like how do you navigate the need to say, I need silence now with the need to say, this is founded upon you speaking to me, right? Um, mm -hmm. So I think that this is always going to be our problem 
you know, and this is the problem with like us wanting to be environmental. We want to be environmental, but we also want to live with heat. Right? So, you know, right. and it requires a kind of sacrifice from us and a willing sacrifice. Yeah. And it's not a possibility, right? It's not something we can't do. I'm not, you know, we get that kind of right wing idea of, ha you're going to stop driving and we can stop. But the point is, what does it take to get us there? And I think that's what I was really getting at is what is desired to the abolitionists. Like we can get there. Who and how are we going to get there? And we're going to have to do it in a collective because to individually try and make these kind of changes isn't going to work, right? So I that's think right. that's part of the process is everybody knows it's difficult to live a different kind of life. Everybody knows that it is much more convenient to do the things that are in the status quo. It is much more convenient to drive because it's cold out. We all know that. And it's not some kind of own when people point that out. Well, you're flying too. It's like, how do we build something different so we don't have to fly? How do we write and learn in different ways that don't uphold academic hierarchy? Right? Like these are, are real, real questions that are we are required to contend with in order to start moving towards the world we want, but it's not easy. And it is, as I say in one of the essays, it's a sacrifice, but then it's not a sacrifice, it's a blessing as well, right? Um, yeah. My partner is actually has a collective farm in Jamaica. They're like building from the ground up. And right now, yeah, they're going to the bathroom in buckets. But as they build, they're making showers like within nature and they're using all organic materials to build. And part of this is, of course, about trying to decolonize the food system in Jamaica. Um, so these are things we can do. It's difficult, but it's also easy. The right thing is in front of you. And we just have to find the kind of collective courage and the support and the mutual aid to, to step forward into that and try it differently, you know? Yeah, the the not the problem, but the sort of challenge is that now it feels as though you're coming up with sort of like a unified theory for fighting systemic inertia, because like you could just as easily apply that sort of conundrum to the central problem of the book, which is prisons, which is there must be an alternative to throwing people into cages and treating uh, danger with more violence and more force and more punishment, there has to be an alternative to that because not only does it not work, it is disgusting it, 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 like uh, in obvious ways. Like as you say, like um, at one point in the book, like uh, uh, you know, prisons are always are going to be sort of unhealthy spaces. They're always going to be um, uh, a threat to human survival, and yet you know they exist and they exist on the other side of this invisibilized border. And until they're contested and we start moving, you know, as you say, like Randy reaching toward the world, unless we start to move in the direction um, are of, of decarceration and abolition of prisons, like they will, they will exist as a, as a sort of tactical knee jerk, you know, expedient response to a problem that people can't seem to imagine deeper structural answers to. But this is the thing, like for you, you're also, there's an interesting moment in the book where like you invoke uh, Star Trek, like this clean utopia <laughs> where all of these problems are answered. That same uh, gesture is oddly enough made in Simpson and Maynard's Rehearsals for Living. They, you know, devote a, an exchange in that book to talking about Star Trek and this like dreamy kind of utopia. And, you know, both of you kind of collapse back into this like, you know, reality of having to, as you put it in the book, fight in messy ways, asking ourselves what right we have to lay out other people's suffering and just like trying to figure out one step after another, how to um, get free, how to make people freer, you know? Um, so it's, it's, as you say, it's like, it's one step at a time. Um, but ultimately it's about sort of, to me, to cite the sort of like central, um, emancipatory ethos of the book. It's about refusing separation. Yeah, and this is, I mean, the sort of whole title idea. So, and I know somebody's going to tell me, oh, you know, people, more people would buy your book if the title was easier, you know. Um, but the point of, <laughs> too many big words, the point of an abolitionist intimacy, like the idea is, the central idea is that the state uses and abuses intimacy, whether that's through the strip search controlling visits, listening into our conversations, making us sit at class tables. You know, literally you have to empty out like your medication at a, at a personal visit, you know. Um, so all the ways that the state uses intimacy against us. Oh, three black men were sitting together. They must be a gang. Um, 
as opposed to that. So that's a carceral intimacy. And as opposed to that is this idea of abolitionist intimacy that runs through the book, which is packing prison boxes and taking the phone call and driving each other and giving each other hand sanitizer. And like, that's the idea that um, a kind of mode of resistance that even when we can't do anything to batter against the wall, we are still resisting by refusing the idea that, you know, a criminal is unlovable or that there is some kind of shame in having a loved one in prison or that you did something wrong or that you must be perverted if you like a guy who's in prison um, or a woman who's in prison, um, you know, like continuing to parent with someone who's in prison despite the shame that's being put on you. Like all of those things are, are resistances. And that's really just central. That's the whole central idea. That's what the title means, um, that it is through these practices of care and aid and black feminist care. Um, it's a lot about women's work in the book. Beverly Bain said that, that in many ways it's a tribute to the work that women do on the front lines. Um, the often unseen work, particularly by working class women, who I say in the book are doing this real work of abolition, right? Like every day it's like black women, indigenous women that are doing all these things to pull people out of the system. So yeah, it's, deeply felt and I, it's hard to sort of talk about in the sense of when you put it like that it seems almost like prisons versus love you know and of course we don't mean that you can just love people out of prison um that if we all collectively like love our like love towards the walls they'll like mysteriously crumble um it it doesn't mean that we're talking about like a radical no. love here right that that also organizes us that also makes us aware of injustice and brings us forward and then gives us the power to right. fight. Like that's the collective thing. Mm -hmm. Well, this is, yeah, this yeah. is it, right? Like it's, it's not, it's not a romantic love though. Like the, it's not a romantic love. And that is evidenced by the fact that like, when you're talking about romantic love, you're talking about how it is a threat to the prison's totalizing regime, right? Like that's the idea is like, if even those acts of like, kindness, putting your hand on someone's hand when they're crying, uh, are, are decried because they're a threat to this sort of, like sort of logic of separation that keeps people like docile and hopeless. Um, then something much bigger is at stake, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not just a kind of supernatural thing. It's, it's actually, as you say, deeply felt, um, and a, and a source of a kind of oppositional politics because, you know, as, as you say in the book, like there's a weird kind of affective attachment to punishment. Like you say, punishment is cathartic for, for many people. Punishment is a version of justice that feels cathartic. And, you know, I mean, there's a couple more things that I wanted to talk to you about. Like in particular, I know that you're doing research right now around uh, animals and, and there are moments where animals come up as this other sort of border uh, between life that is grievable, let's say, and life that is not. Um, but I just want to say though, that like there are people, people are going to read this book, but I think people should really read this book. Like in the sense that like there are whole worlds, I would say represented in just like 50 word sections of this book. Like there are paragraphs like the one on diversity or equality, these interludes, um, that are some of the most devastating paragraphs people will ever read. Um, where you're talking about unequal punishment and like holding on to these ephemeral worlds that are inhabited and expressed by people that have been excluded and exploited. Um, moments where you talk about people, you know, learning to live in their minds as a mode of uh, empowerment um, and, and resilience, I guess. Um, so, I mean, it's a, it's a really, it's a beautiful book. Um, and it's a book about trying to, I think, figure out a language for these moments um, that for you have been, you know, transformative that have changed you, uh, but that, you know, I think you hope in conveying them in, in the sort of poetic uh, rigor that you have will be as affecting on the page as you were affected by them in real life. Yeah, well, thank you. That's really nice. Um, I also do have to say that um, Fazila Jiwa, the editor at Fernwood, is so responsible for how this kind of final structure looks which is a thing that so many people are commenting on. And that was really put together by Fazila. Mm -hmm. um, so she was the one that really chopped things up and moved them around and, and had that idea to do that. So um, Fazila has just been 
such a great editor. She was the one that had a sort of 400 page monster to deal with and she did it beautifully. So I really, really, and I, I said this kind of before, but by the time, you know, the book was at this stage where it was with Fernwood, I it had been through, I mean, I'd lived with so many of these essays and poems and stuff in different ways. It had been through all these different drafts. And I really was like, I can't look at it. So Fazila really right. did a lot of like making it into a book. So I really want to thank her. Um, I do want to say something briefly about the animal research. Yeah, so um, so the research I'm working on now, it's around police animals, but more broadly around um, animal justice and racial justice. So the ways that, you know, the animal rights movement is very much seen as a white first world luxury movement um, that is often divorced from human needs. And of course, due to the animalizing of black people, Black people are quite mistrustful of this notion, right? Um, any sort of comparisons to animals are a no-go for us because we have, of course, been animalized. Um, but I was really thinking a lot about police dogs and police animals in particular and this idea that they don't consent to being involved in state violence, but they are present at every side of state violence. So dogs in particular are just, you know, airports at the border, torturing people in Abu Ghraib, police dogs, and of course, police bites and in Canada, police bites are overwhelmingly against Indigenous people. Um, police dog bites, like, massively. In Toronto, it's Black people, and everywhere else, it's Indigenous people. We don't have data, but I've been putting it together through just why well, I requested it, first yeah. of all. Of course we don't have data, yeah. Been putting it together. Of course we don't. And yeah. I've been putting it together through lawsuits and complaints. And it's very obvious that police dogs overwhelmingly are being set upon and biting Indigenous people. Um, but, of course, the dogs don't agree to be part of that. Um, so one of the things I got really interested in is, um, and I don't want to say it in that way. That sounds, let me reapproach that. Um, Laura Holland, who is a Wet'suwet'en um, mother who's out on the front lines, her son, Jared, is killed in an encounter with the police dog, Jared Lowndes. Um, a police dog gator is set upon him as he's in his car in Tim Hortons parking lot when the police are executing a warrant. He defends himself, so he stabs the dog because the dog jumps through the window. Um, and he is shot to death. And Gator also dies, the police dog. And three stories are written about the dog before Jared, the Wet'suwet'en man, is even acknowledged. Mm. Um, police hold a huge parade for the police dog. Like hundreds of like white people come out and line the streets. Um, while they were holding memorials for Jared, people would drive by and say, a dog is worth more than you. Like you're a worthless criminal. People vandalized the memorial that his family put and my conclusion from this is that police dogs are granted a contingent white humanity in return for participating in state violence. So police wow. dogs are officially officers. Right. They're the only animals that officially get to be cops. And in fact, to the extent that a law has been passed in Canada where if you harm a police dog, you get enhanced sentencing because it's the same as like harming a cop. So in right. the same country that has made it, gives you enhanced sentencing if you, for example, take a picture of animals being taken to slaughter, or block a farm and have sentenced people to jail simply for witnessing on the Excelsior farm what is happening to animals, that the same country is criminalized literally witnessing or taking pictures of animals suffering in our farm system, in this corporate farm system, criminalize you if you are set upon by a police dog who's been violently trained to you know, bite you. Be used as a weapon. Yeah. Because it's a cop, right? Yeah. So. I wrote this presentation that really talks about this mournability, right? And that, um, yeah, my conclusion is that Gator gets to become a white person because he kills indigenous people, right? Um, but of course, that's just performative and contingent because once the dogs retire, they don't have any pension or healthcare, and sometimes they're killed and found dead. Um, right. And there are psychological effects on the animals, right? You say in the book, they're institutionalized too. Yeah, it's extremely traumatic um, for the animals. The kind of training they go through is unnatural. Dogs do not want to go around biting people. So they literally will, in propaganda, will talk about how they train the dogs eight hours a day. What's all that training for? It's mm -hmm. to force them to do something unnatural. They have damage to their skeletons. They can't be around other dogs. They're considered like high risk, high needs. Um, drug sniffing dogs actually become addicted to the drugs. So this is extremely violent to the animal. So working through that, I was really interested in police dogs. But then more broadly, I was very interested in why abolition should extend to animals as well. That animals are actually our co-comrades in revolution and that the history of white supremacy also encompasses animals. Because of course we could not be animalized were animals not in a subordinate position. 
the very weight of saying a black person is a dog or a mule is because we don't see dogs and mules as equal beings to us, as beings with whatever you want to call it, souls, intellect, whatever. So um, the broader project is very much about trying to bring together animal justice and all our abolition work and say, it's got to be for non-human animals as well, right? And um, mm-hmm. we really have to rethink our relationship to animals and extend our liberation through that way. And how does that change how we live as well? So yeah, that's really the new work. It's I haven't worked on it for about a month now. You know, I was really into it. And then of course you're doing all this book mm-hmm. stuff and I feel mm-hmm. now disconnected from the animal stuff. Um, I don't know, it's been a really nice field to step into. It feels like a bit of a relief. So I actually do want to get back to it. But of course, once you start, the interesting thing about a book is it almost takes you back in time that it's work that you're finished with because that's why it's in a book. And then you spend the next six months talking about this old work while you're trying to produce the work that you're doing right now. Right. So it's right. kind of an interesting space. I found that just in general, interesting with a book. Um, and perhaps this goes to the living archive idea that now that I have archived my ideas and they're held in a particular way, um, then you have to relate to them in another way. So that's a whole other idea, like the lifespan of a book. But I think like at the kind of pre-launch event uh, a little while ago, you, you, you talked um, th- about how like your relationship to your work is often to just move on to like, yeah. not look at it again, like not listen to interviews. So you won't listen to this. <laughs> like, um, and, and so like, that's, I find that um, fascinating to be honest, because I think like it's, it's counterintuitive for a lot of people who do, you know, put themselves in the work, like who pour over it and try and get it perfect. Like the, the, you know, part of the goal in producing a, whatever kind of art you're, you're producing is to sort of like behold the artifact after the fact and be like, wow, this is, you know, look at what I've done here, but you don't do that. You're, you're, you're onto the next thing. Um, and I see that as like, I'd like to be more <laughs> um, inclined to do that, you know? Uh, I think it'd be kind of liberating in a way to just like, let's, let's do the next thing. You know, in Ed Wood, um, like, you know, like a light will fall into frame. He's like, it's fine. Print it. I was feeling like that's what I'm like. I'm like, mm-hmm. whatever. No one will know it's spoken. It'll be fine. <laughs> um, no, well, I guess like to be a bit more serious because most of my work has taken place. A lot of poems I'm writing like on the bus or I have mm-hmm. two hours to do it before event or in transit or on the plane or whatever I'm doing. So, um, perhaps that would change in a life where I had like this space, this mythical, if I lived at Banff, you know, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe I do more editing, but I think part of it is really that a lot, like, because I had very compressed time to write, I didn't have, to, I don't have time to sit there and contemplate. I just have to get it onto the page and then leave it. And then of course, the other thing I think is because of the kind of backlash you get to this work, mm-hmm. I can't really, part of the reason why I think you have to move on is because I know that when you do an interview about prisons or something, the comment's going to be filled with people calling you a disgusting person. And you can't engage in that, right? Like I wouldn't be able to do the work that I do in any form if I dwelled on all the ways that people tear you down, all the hateful things that are said, all the racist things that are said. You just have to block it and listen to the people who have something to say to you that actually matters, right? Mm -hmm. The critiques from people that you know, um, but yeah, so I think it's also just that practice as a black woman in the world, right? I, you cannot pay those things any mind. So um, I guess in that, I've sort of developed the practice of set it and forget it, right? You do your thing, you say what you have to say, you pre-think it, you try and say it with integrity, and then the world is going to take it how they take it. And there's nothing you can do about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you cannot force people to receive your ideas in the way you want or hope for, right? So I just put them out there and then keep it pushing. So yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it's also, you know, I'm like, I'm realizing I, now you're getting some personal info. I do talk about running a bit in the book and I I joined the Mm -hmm. Roadhammers, which I love. It's a a running group. But the more I hang around other runners, I realize how much I have a runner's personality. And I'm like, oh, so much of the stuff in me is just running. Like never be, it's never happy with what you're doing. You know, like always, whenever you race, you always feel like you could have got a couple of extra minutes out of yourself, you know? Like, I just feel like this is a very running thing and always moving Hmm. forward. Maybe it's just that. Maybe I just have a running personality and I just reflect it onto my writing and work as well. Yeah, I mean, like, that embodied thing is part of your writing for sure. And I have to think that you have, like, memories of writing particular poems and, like, certain moments and, like, even the environment around you as you're writing them. Like, I know that, like, 
you know, for me, that's, that's often a big part of writing is like reflecting on like, wow, that, you know, that space allowed for the genesis of that specific idea. What's the connection between like the space and the idea, you know? I've always, see, this has always been funny to me and I would laughed so hard at Desmond because, um, you know, when Desmond's book, it's a very successful book. So, you know, as he, mm-hmm. his book came out and he was getting these like really good gigs, um, a lot of them would be like, oh, we want to see your writing space or, you know, can you talk about like which books sure. have inspired you? And I would just laugh because I'd be like, you know, God, like my writing space is like me huddled on my bed on my phone, like writing on a phone app, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like it's not this like, oh, you know, I have a, a well-lit writing room with like my desk. And then I'm like, yeah, you got to go lie, Desmond, you know, you got to go put like a translation of the Odyssey on your desk and be like, oh, I'm rereading the Odyssey for the fifth time. I, this is my favorite translation, right? But in reality, like I'm reading Twitter, you know, like, sure. So I don't know. I mean, I just think it's funny. And this, again, speaks to sort of the ways that authors get elevated in particular ways, especially if you become a successful author. It's kind of then it becomes this mythology like, oh, you're so-and-so, you know, which is anti-intimacy. I remember being very young when I was a very young grad student and going to conferences and like nobody knew who I was. And you just like sit there, you know, by yourself and like no one would talk to you. And now, you know, I'm whoever I am, like Elle Jones, whatever that means. And of course, you know, people, I don't go somewhere if I'm uninvited. And so I'm the speaker, right? And so that actually, I always remember that, you know, I, I very much remember sitting there and when you're so young and publishing a book seems like this amazing thing that you hope to do someday. And you just look up to this person that did it. Um, but you know, now that I'm in those shoes, I'm like, you have no idea how messy life is, you know? <laughs> totally. Yeah. So, so I think that's also important that we can laugh at ourselves that, you know, I've given you this very serious, like, you know, very deep discussion of the book, but then, you know, I'm, I'm going to go eat like fruit snacks, you know? So I very much think that we cannot in activism take ourselves too seriously. The work is very serious. So we have to be able to laugh at ourselves and laugh at other people and other people have to be able to laugh at us, you know? Um, and we have to kind of break that down, this notion that, you know, I'm the mystical author that does these amazing, like, I'm such a great activist. I, I love everybody, you know, and it's like, oh, you know, like, like, I also am petty and mean to people, too. Like, we're all like that. So I'm not yeah. interested in being unhuman. I'm very interested in just like everybody being the human that they are. And I guess that's part of, yeah, like not getting too deep into your own work and, and just living your life around it, too. Mm hmm. Yeah, letting it breathe a little bit. I mean, the book doesn't talk explicitly about respectability politics, but there are moments where you're talking about sort of like purity politics, like purism, um, and just trying to work as hard as possible against that. And like, it's hard because there are real rewards wrapped up in that whole thing, like that whole performative element of sort of what communicators do um, in a deeply like entrepreneurial competitive uh, world, you know? Um, but I, yeah, I love that this book is trying to reach toward um, a different world while acknowledging that we are in a deeply messy one in which we still have to fight tooth and nail uh, against small and massive injustices. And it's like, it's exhausting. Like you talked about how just, you know, it's not for the glamour that you do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, thanks so much for making the time. Thank you for, as always, um, you know, you've from a very early on, you've been supportive. You've always, um, you know, welcomed in my voice. So thank you, Scott, for all that you do. Happy to do it. <laughs>